0: Former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book *Mistreated*, while we think we're... hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book *Mistreated*, while we think we're getting good health care and why we're usually wrong. And I am Jeremy Corr. Host of the New Books in Medicine
1: podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out of pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past.
0: Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone
1: from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Medicine. I am your host, Jeremy Corr. Today, we'll be talking to science journalist Laura Spinney. Her work has appeared in National Geographic, Nature, The Economist, The Daily Telegraph, among others, and is the author of two other books, The Doctor and The Quick. She's here today to talk about her book, Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Laura, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, so, as you uh, mentioned, I'm a science journalist. Um, I uh, write for a lot of different publications, uh, ordinarily, in fact, on on neuroscience, um, but anything sort of within the life sciences. I'm also um, a novelist. Uh, you mentioned my two novels, which have been published. Um, and so, um, this is actually my second venture into non-fiction in terms of books. Um, and uh, the the story of the Spanish flu just seemed to me about four years ago when I first came aware of the of, of of the subject that that it was a story that needed to be told. We were starting to talk about the science behind the Great War, uh, the First World War, and nobody was talking about the Spanish flu, which, as you know, killed many more people. Um, so there seemed to be a kind of gap there that needed to be filled.
1: So between March 1918 and March 1920, the Spanish flu was responsible for the deaths of somewhere between 50 and 100 million people, between 2.5 and 5 percent of the world's population, uh, the biggest loss of life since the Black Plague, more than both World War I and World War II. Yet when we think of major events from the 20th century, the Spanish flu pandemic isn't one that comes to mind for most people. Can you talk about this?
2: I think that it's a a theme that I explore in my book, why do we remember wars and we don't remember pandemics? Um, I mean, I think we have a pretty good memory these days uh, in terms of awareness of the Black Death, even though it happened, what, 600 years ago. Um, But my theory is that uh, collective memories for wars and pandemics uh, kind of coalesce differently. Um, Memories for plagues take time for some reason to form and then, and then are forgotten more slowly, whereas wars, we remember more easily, but they, they, they are forgotten faster. That's my theory anyway, and I think it has a lot to do with language. Take 1918, for example. Virus was a fairly new concept then, and um, nobody thought the disease that had taken the world by storm was caused by a virus. They thought it was a bacterial disease, so already from the outset, they were not equipped uh, either medically or linguistically, to talk about this thing that had that had struck them.
1: Uh, can you please share with us a little bit about the early uh, recorded history of epidemics and pandemics?
2: We we don't even know precisely when flu became a, a human disease, but the scientists think that it probably happened um, in the last uh, twelve thousand years, roughly, basically since since the farming revolution, because it was at that point that humans came to live together in denser settlements, which provided the ideal conditions for the spread of a respiratory disease. People have to be relatively close for the flu virus to spread between them. Um, When did the first epidemic occur? Because probably in the early days, uh, the flu wasn't terribly contagious uh, amongst people. Uh, It probably took time for it to evolve uh, a high level of contagion um so we also don't know when the first um epidemic uh happened but it probably happened since the founding of the of the first cities um and then uh the first really reliable report of a flu epidemic doesn't even come along until the 16th century um, and so, you see, it's kind of like uh, sketchy in the historical record, and also it's something that has evolved with human beings and with the growth of the human population on the planet.
1: The Spanish flu hit at a time when people were, you know, pretty optimistic about medicine. Uh, germ theory and other medical ba- breakthroughs had caused this optimism. Yet You mentioned in your book that this era straddled the, the modern and pre-modern era. You, People believed in both quantum theory and witches. Some people lived in skyscrapers and used telephones, while others lived like they had since the Middle Ages. Uh, Can you talk to us about this?
2: Yeah, so I think this is really interesting. I mean, Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch um, and others had introduced Kind of the uh, elements of germ theory from the beginning, from the middle of the 19th century. So it had been around for you know 60 years or so. But it takes a while for a radically new way of thinking about health to kind of percolate through the general population. And though germ theory was accepted across most of the industrial industrialized world, I think there were the large swathes of the world where it hadn't been. Um, and where, um you know, you can see it kind of under the surface, people thought about air as noxious, air was something that could spread disease. And so there were some very old ideas just bubbling beneath the surface, even amongst those who had been exposed to the modern ideas associated with germ theory and vaccination and, and so on. So I think you also have to bear in mind that in 1918, large parts of the world had been at war for four years and um you know their psychological defenses were low they'd been worn down by that they were they were tired they were terrorized they were anxious and it was fairly easy for them to flip back um to a kind of more mystical way of thinking about things You know, it wasn't so difficult for um, people to start thinking that this was some kind of divine punishment for the horrors that humanity had itself inflicted on the world, some kind of punishment for the war. And so, you know, even in the industrial industrialized world, it it wasn't um, it wasn't uh, unheard of that uh, people would think about this uh, pandemic uh, in more religious or mythical terms.
1: The first recorded case of the Spanish flu was in, in Kansas in 1918. Can you please talk about its discovery and, and how it was spread?
2: Yes, the first officially recorded case of the Spanish flu was in March 1918 on a, uh, in a military base in Kansas called Camp Funston. Um, and uh, basically, we, we call it the first official case. It, it was the first. Outbreak in in a local sense um, of a contagious respiratory disease that we now recognize as the Spanish flu, um, but most experts uh, would agree that the Spanish flu was probably around earlier than that. That's why there's a lot of discussion about where its origins were. Still, so um, just to say that we shouldn't confuse the first recorded cases with the actual origins of um the pandemic that is patient 0 where this new and very virulent strain jumped from um some kind of animal into humans but um the first cases were reported there and then uh, this would have been the spring wave of uh well spring in the northern hemisphere the first of three waves of the pandemic that took the world by storm it was um it was the mildest uh, the most dangerous would not strike until um the autumn of that year um and then there was a third in early 1919 all of these dates depending on where you were in the world um but that's the rough uh, outline of it so tracing its it spread from those early cases is not as easy as you might think it did spread um sort of uh eastwards across the states um and uh possibly to europe but then before you get to Europe, you start seeing uh, signs of contagion coming back the other way. And there's also some indication that there may have been contagion in Asia already at that point. Now, flu is obviously a disease that spreads very rapidly, but connections were slower then than they are now. Um, All of this just goes to show that it's very difficult to say where it started and in which direction it was spreading.
1: What were the symptoms of the Spanish flu? What made it so much worse than the seasonal flus that hit every year before it?
2: It started out basically as a seasonal flu. Um, You know, the first symptoms were sore throat, headache, fever, um, as we all recognize it when we have caught that disease in in the winter. Um, And for the vast majority of people, that's all it was. They recovered after a few days. But in a small percentage, and um, the percentage was much higher than in um, usual flu seasons, um, people went on to develop a much more um, severe syndrome. They had difficulty difficulty breathing. Uh, They developed a kind of mahogany color in their cheeks. The mahogany turned to blue and it spread across their faces and eventually across their whole bodies. Um, Insidiously, the blue would turn to black. And by that time, it was fairly well recognized that there was really no hope of recovery. And people who got to that stage would probably die um, within a few hours uh, or days. And uh, they died a, a fairly unpleasant death because they essentially were suffering from massive inflammation in their lungs, which meant which meant that they um, died by drowning in their own um, fluids.
1: How did it come to be called the Spanish flu?
2: <laughs> ah, the sixty four thousand dollar question. Well, it had nothing really to do with Spain, although Spain did have a bad case of it. But like many other countries in the world, the reasons for its name are really purely political because Spain was neutral in the First World War and therefore unlike the belligerent countries did not censor its press. So When the first cases were reported in Madrid in um, May of 1918, uh, they were reported in the newspapers uh, and they included the king and some members of his cabinet. So let's say it was a fairly visible outbreak. the disease had already been in uh the states uh for a couple of months already we already said that the first official cases were recorded in Kansas uh in March They had already been it had already been in France and Britain for a couple of weeks already but um people beyond those countries and sometimes even within those countries didn't know that because their press uh the press in those uh countries was censored in order not to uh, lower the morale of the populations with um any any kind of negative news so it seemed to the newspaper newspaper reading were public uh, across the world that the disease was rippling out from Madrid, and we should remember that newspapers were the main form of uh, transmission of news in those days.
1: Now, you, you briefly touched on this earlier, but what were some of the superstitions around where it came from?
2: Well, uh, again, remember that this was a time of war. Many people were convinced that it was a form of... Uh, um by a warfare um there was there were rumors that the germans had landed submarines on the coast of the united states with uh the germ aboard um there were ideas that it had um that it was due to bad air rotten air rising from the corpses left on the killing fields of europe And then there was the more religious uh, type of explanation, explanation, which really was just the idea that God was punishing humanity for this cataclysmic
1: war. In the book, you talk a bit about uh, how our, our sense of disgust can work as a survival mechanism. Uh, causing us to avoid things that gross us out, even back before germ theory or anything like that. This leads Mm, to mm. behavior such as quarantining and avoiding the sick. Can you please talk to us about this and uh, what some of the quarantine efforts were during the Spanish flu pandemic?
2: I mean, obviously, the best way to prevent contagion when it comes to respiratory disease is to keep people apart from each other um and uh in many ways this goes against our instincts when uh when there's a, a threat to us as a as a group or a community because the evidence seems to suggest that in times of danger whether it be a natural disaster or war we are relatively inclined to help each other um in the case of an epidemic that's not terribly helpful because we should be uh, remaining separate staying at home not going out into mass gatherings and the and then you know into the public transport and meetings and stuff like that, because um, because that all spread the germ. But it, it looks as if people were still inclined to help each other in 1918, even though um, that uh, risked spreading the contagion. Um, there were official top-down measures, of course, in those countries that were in a fit state um, and, and had the resources to manage it. Um, so in many countries of the industrialised world, quarantines were put in place. Uh, Unfortunately, they weren't put in place uh, with very much uh, coherence, and often for not long enough. Um, But uh, and and often, as I said before, with a uh, with a faulty understanding of the microbe that was causing this disease. Um, So, for example, in Chile, doctors uh, took measures to contain the disease, but they were convinced that they were dealing with typhus, um, which starts out with many of the symptoms of flu, although then uh, it. uh, patient develops a rash, which distinguishes it, but the the typhus is spread um, by uh, lice, so the doctors in Chile did not think it necessary to prevent mass gatherings because um, the germ spreads much more easily than a respiratory one, and so they uh, precipitated a massive uh, public health crisis in that country, crowds met um, uh, to celebrate. The uh, flying over the uh, first of, uh, independent flight over the Andes of a famous ace pilot. They met to celebrate his achievement in the streets of the capital, Santiago, and after that, there was just an explosion of flu and the hospitals couldn't cope.
1: There was uh, no vaccine or way to cure it. Uh, what were some of the ways that people sought treatment and some of the ways doctors tried to treat it?
2: The thing to understand about it is that um, the thing that actually killed the majority of uh, the Spanish flu's victims was a bacterial pneumonia. So this is a, a complication, a secondary infection, if you like. The lungs were already compromised by the virus, and then um, uh, bacteria moved in and finished the work, if you like. Um, and so um, some of the uh, some doctors tried using vaccines that were antibacterial, and they actually had some success, which didn't help. In terms of understanding of the disease, because it convinced them that they were really dealing with a bacterial disease when in fact they were only dealing with the complications, and many of those vaccines didn't work. Um, There were other treatments; Um, many folk remedies were tried, but in fact, the really the only thing that really made any difference was good nursing. So, keeping the patient warm, uh, in bed, uh, hydrated and that was the thing that really determined whether they would um, survive or not.
1: In the book you talk about how epidemics bring out the best and the worst in people. Can you please discuss some of the examples from uh, the Spanish flu for our listeners?
2: Yes, so I w- I've already touched on the notion of, a, of of what psychologists call collective resilience, this idea that when um, a population is threatened by something external, Uh, They can come together and look after each other and, uh, you know, uh, show a certain amount of resilience as a group. But uh, there were also examples of antisocial behavior, it's undoubtedly true. Um, For example, profiteering on medicines and uh, coffins and things, basic supplies like like milk. These things happened, especially as the pandemic wore on and in some parts of the world people thought that it would just never end. Um, I'm trying to think of examples of other antisocial behavior. There was sometimes, uh, especially where there were already, for example, underlying racial tensions, um, a, a, a tendency to blame people of another color for the disease. This happened in South Africa, for example where um, there's fairly good evidence that it um, accelerated the move towards apartheid in the um, 1920s. Um, So, yeah, collective resilience on one hand, but certainly there were examples of, of what we might call bad behavior on the other.
1: Will you please talk to us a bit about the hunt for patient zero?
2: Okay, so I mentioned earlier that though we know the first official cases were recorded in Kansas, that probably wasn't the beginning of the Spanish flu because the disease was already quite contagious by that time. So um, when, when you're trying to trace the beginning of the pandemic, you're probably trying to look for relatively small outbreaks that are transmitted between a few people at a time and then uh, fizzle out because the uh, virus has um, evolved to infect humans but has not yet acquired the um, molecular changes that allow it to be highly contagious between humans. It's still a little bit better adapted to the animal, whether it be a bird or a pig, from which it came. And so that's what we're looking for when we're looking for the origins of the Spanish flu. And essentially, we, we don't know the answer, but there are three current theories about where it started. and um, They correspond to Kansas, so somewhere in the region of the... Funston, where the first cases were recorded, um, and the reason for that is that there was um, a, an outbreak of a fairly um, vicious respiratory disease uh, a few months earlier in January of 1918 in a different part of Kansas. And one of the theories goes um, that the virus traveled with um, a, a young man probably who was coming from a farming area in Kansas and who was recruited to the military base in uh Camp Funston and sort of unwittingly carried this virus into the heart of the American war machine that's one theory. Um a second theory places the that initial outbreak in a big British military camp on the coast of northern France at a place called Étaples and um that uh the, the 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 idea there is that um The high density of young men, some of whose lungs had already been compromised by being exposed to uh, damaging um, weapons like mustard gas, created very good conditions for the virus to evolve and acquire both the virulence that we saw later and the um, ability to transmit itself between human beings. Um, There were early cases of a disease that resembled um, the Spanish flu notably in the blue tint to the face that the patients acquired um, as early as 1916. So, um, that's the second theory and then the third theory um, suggests that the Spanish flu had its origins in the Chinese population. Um, The scientific evidence for this is probably the least strong, but the historical evidence uh, is interesting um because in the only in the last few decades has it come to light that there was a body of chinese workers known as the chinese labor corps that was recruited in northern china and brought to europe um many of them via canada to work behind the lines uh in the war effort and the thinking is that if there was uh, a precursor of the spanish flu um mm. circulating in china at, at that time then they could have brought it with them to Europe and uh, would have been the perfect vehicle, in fact, for transmitting the virus around the world.
1: What roughly was the ultimate death toll and, and how was that calculated?
2: The estimated death toll, I mean, we, we're, we're always working with estimates because exactly because of the problem I mentioned earlier that nobody thought it was a viral disease. It was You know, influenza was not well understood, and this was not an obvious form of influenza. It wasn't typical. Many, many, many doctors misdiagnosed it for something else. So they did not have a diagnostic test, and that means that when we are retrospectively diagnosing people, we're always guessing. We can never be completely sure that those people had the Spanish flu. That said, obviously, if a lot of people around the world are dying of a a severe respiratory disease um, with similar symptoms within a narrow time. Frame, We can be fairly certain that it was the same disease. Um, but the estimates have essentially been ratcheted up in, in various depths since the 1920s. Um, in, in the 1920s, it was thought that the Spanish were probably killed in the region of 20 million people globally, um, which would have put it on a par with the um, First World War in terms of just the sheer scale of death. The, the First World War is considered to have killed. 18 million people, roughly. Um, over the years, that that estimate rose, um, partly because of an understanding that some of the worst affected populations were those who were least likely to have been um, treated by doctors or even, you know, recorded in in, a, in terms of a census. So not only their disease might have escaped notice, but their lives may not have been registered anywhere. Um, and the estimate that we work with today, which suggests a minimum of 50 million and, and a maximum of 100 million, uh, really only dates from um, the last few decades. And uh, the reason for that vast range is, again, because um, we, we are talking about uh, populations where – we're, we're talking about the idea that some of the worst affected populations might also have been the, the, seen the, the least reporting of the disease. Um, It's important to say that 50 million is roughly the death toll that was calculated for the Second World War. So um, it is possible that Spanish flu killed more than both World Wars put together, but it's also possible that it was uh, on a par with the Second
1: World War. Science, medicine, and our understanding of disease has improved. The, The Spanish flu was extinct until 2005 when it was brought back to life for research purposes. Can you talk to us about recent research efforts into uh, things like its origin and why it was uh, much more likely complicated by pneumonia than other flus and why it was so much more fatal uh, and and what are any mysteries that surround it to this day?
2: When they revived the virus in 2005, one of the first things they noticed about it, they infected mice in a series of experiments, was that this virus was Particularly good at evading the um, the the human bodies or the mammalian body's first line of defence. So when a um, a microbe infects um, a human uh, or um, uh, other mammals, uh, it triggers an interferon response. Interferon is a kind of uh, generalized uh, response to infection, and it can be mobilized very rapidly. Um, And if it works to stop Infection, then uh, a person will barely feel sick. Um, But if uh, the virus has evolved in order to be able to sort of bypass the interferon response, then um, it can uh, amplify, multiply in the body, and then the person will start to feel symptoms. And then the second line of defense is mobilized, which takes some time because it essentially involves. Um, immune cells that are tailored to the particular microbe in in question. So this revived virus what it taught scientists was that the Spanish flu, the strain that caused the Spanish flu was particularly good at evading the interferon response um, which is why so many people fell ill, probably one in three people on earth. Um, And uh, we don't really know why uh, why it was able to do that but it explains why it was so devastating as a pandemic.
1: Are there any mysteries that surround it to this day?
2: Oh I think there are many mysteries. I mean one we've already touched on is uh, where it came from, where in the world and what animal also. Why did it uh, preferentially target people in the age group 20 to 40? Um, There are some ideas about that. It probably has to do with historical exposure to flu, so there's a theory um, widely accepted that uh, the human immune system is best tuned to the first flu strain that it's ever exposed to. So the first flu you're exposed to as a child, you're going to be best uh, protected against that throughout your life. Uh, If you are then exposed to a flu strain that is very different um, in terms of its molecular makeup, Your immune system will be partial, your immune response will be partial at best. Um, The 20 to 40 year olds in 1918, probably the first flu that they had been exposed to as children was the so called Russian flu uh, strain of the um, 1890s, which caused a pandemic, a much smaller pandemic in those years. Um, And that is thought to have been um, uh, the H3N8 strain of influenza A, whereas the Spanish flu was H1N1. So if, if you like, their um, immune systems were primed to deal with a very different virus, and that may explain why they were so uh, vulnerable in 1918.
1: What was it like for, for the survivors after the pandemic ended?
2: Um, I think that the survivors were absolutely knocked sideways. I mean, um, partly because it took out these 20 to 40-year-olds, adults in the prime of life, It robbed families of their breadwinners and of of the parents of uh, young children. Many, many children were orphaned. We don't know exactly how many because um, there wasn't really a good social safety net in place at the time and adoption wasn't organized as well as it it is today. Um, But we know, for example, that there were at least 500,000 children orphaned in South Africa alone. Um, And so what you see starting in the 1920s is a kind of... I mean, I think of it as a rather sad music game of musical chairs, because families literally had to recompose themselves. And a lot of people fell through the cracks. Um, you know, a lot of elderly people moved into workhouses and poor houses, uh, because there was no one to look after them. Um, there were a lot of widows created who, you know, um, with the combined pressure of the war, which um, took a lot of the men away, weren't able to marry again. A lot of people were left alone. A lot of people were left with the long-term effects of the Spanish flu if they themselves had been ill. So for example, it seems to have caused um, uh, to some degree mental health problems, particularly depression, melancholia, as it was called uh, called at the time. Uh, in a lot of people, it's very difficult to disentangle the effects of the war and the flu. So perhaps some of that was to do with social upheaval caused by the war and bereavement. But some of it seems definitely to have been down to the flu. so there were very long-term effects. The the um, babies who were in the womb at the time that the Spanish flu struck, if their mothers survived, because pregnant women were extremely vulnerable to the Spanish flu, if their mothers survived, those children had bore the kind of long-term scars of that of that exposure, because um, probably because uh, their mothers' bodies were fighting this dangerous infection, uh, diverting resources from the womb. Those children went on. To be disadvantaged in um, a whole variety of ways in later life, so they were physically diminished. Um, They were probably cognitively diminished to some extent. There's evidence that they were less likely to earn a good wage, more likely to go to prison, uh, more likely to develop a heart disease after the age of 60. So in a way, it was a uh, a whole generation that had its life chances damaged by the Spanish flu, and we're still, you know, uh, we're still. Seeing the effects of that, that generation has really only just passed.
1: What are some of the long-term impacts of the Spanish flu on science and healthcare?
2: That's an excellent question. I think, you know, within the in the 20s and 30s, scientists really realized, I mean, they knew immediately that they had failed. And so they were, let's say, highly motivated to learn from their mistakes. Um, in the 20s and 30s, the field of virology took off i mean the first viruses had really been discovered in the late 19th century so uh they they were known about but very little was known about them people didn't even know for example that they were a living organism as we know now they were they they had a sort of vague idea it was it was something smaller than they could see with microscopes that were available at the time you need an electron microscope to see a to see a um a virus and that wasn't invented for decades to come Uh, So, it hadn't been seen, and people thought it was um, more like a kind of poison than a living organism. Uh, In the 20s and 30s, virology took off, Um, many advances were made. The first, uh, albeit primitive, flu vaccines were invented and applied in the 1930s. Um, So, it really advanced very quickly. In terms of public health, um, I think you see probably the biggest changes uh, coming from the Spanish flu. Um, At the time that it struck, a uh, very popular and mainstream current in of thought was um, eugenics. So we think of this, we associate eugenics with the Nazis, but it was already popular um, in 1918. And 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 insidiously, people tended to blame those who fell ill for their own illness. They were at fault because they were constitutionally inferior. Whereas, of course, we know now that if you're um, if you're vulnerable to an infectious disease, a lot of it has to do with uh, underlying um, socio-economic factors uh, that affect nutrition, uh, exposure to disease, access to healthcare and so on. So I think there was a realization in the 1920s that it was no use blaming individuals for an infectious disease or treating them in isolation. You had to understand the, both the biological and the social factors that gave rise um, and shaped uh, a pandemic. And so in the 1920s, in large parts of the world, you see socialized medicine coming in. Uh, The idea that you administer treatment free at the point of delivery, that necessitated um, the creation of national insurance systems. Uh, In the United States, um, they went a different way with employer-based insurance schemes, but it was a similar principle. Um, And uh, there was a much greater emphasis on prevention. You saw many countries creating or organizing their ministries reorganizing their ministries of health to make them more autonomous and independent so that they could act quickly um, uh, in in case of another such emergency and wouldn't have to go uh, begging for funds to different departments. Um, And also you see in some parts of the world um, a turning against science and uh, conventional medicine. Uh, People were disappointed and disillusioned, you know. You mentioned in your introduction that there had been huge faith in progress and science at, at, at the um, on the eve of the First World War. The First World War was one one reason why that uh, faith rapidly fell off, because here was science being applied to cause uh, mass death on an industrial scale. But the Spanish flu was another, because here was another disaster that the that science had been unable to stop so in the 1920s you see for example a massively new uh, a new following of alternative what we now call alternative and complementary medicines they had been uh, regarded with a singular lack of respect um uh, until then and had been very much in the shadow of the conventional doctors but now they um they enjoyed a new popularity and that um just grow, grew grew uh, in the Decades to come, there was also a new emphasis, I think, on um, sport and on keeping yourself healthy and on prevention and on, uh, you know, fresh air. All those things that we today associate with good with good health, but weren't necessarily associated with good health until the 1920s and 30s.
1: One of the parts of the book that I found particularly interesting was where you talked about how it impacted uh, or affected both Woodrow Wilson and Gandhi. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: So both of those personages fell ill with the Spanish flu. Woodrow Wilson, at the time that he fell ill, it was the early months of 1919. He was completely absorbed with the uh, peace process in Paris and uh, he was essentially the only one amongst the major leaders attending that conference who was calling for a moderate peace, um, uh, not to hammer the uh, central powers with reparations or to humiliate them. The other leaders, mainly European, wanted vengeance, essentially. So he was a a very, very important person in that conference, and uh, he was um, in some ways handicapped by his uh, bout of Spanish Flu. We know that Woodrow Wilson had a neurological weakness. He had probably been suffering from mini strokes um, even before then, and it looks as if the Spanish flu may have exacerbated them. Now, I have to give the caveat that retrospective diagnosis is very tricky and controversial, but there are uh, there is a certain degree of consensus amongst neurologists neurologist, that he may have suffered one or more further mini-strokes that spring. Um, people who were uh, their eyewitnesses attest to the fact that his character seemed to change. He was normally very calm and a uh, measured person and he became irascible and impatient and wouldn't hear people out. So um, it kind of uh, detracted from his ability to defend the moderate position in the peace process. Uh, that may be controversial. What is almost completely agreed upon amongst neurologists is, is that his infection that spring contributed to a massive stroke that he had the following autumn. And that was important in historical terms because the following autumn, he was charged with persuading the US government, uh, Congress to uh, ratify the Treaty of Versailles and to join the League of Nations. Um, and he failed in both of those. He was simply out of order. I mean, he he was paralyzed on one side, he was unable to take on those duties. And so the US never joined the League of Nations and never ratified the Treaty of Versailles, which had long-term consequences. Gandhi's story is really interesting because Gandhi um, in 1918 was being viewed in India uh, amongst intellectuals as uh, a possible future leader of India post-independence, which he was fighting for, obviously um but he wasn't really known or followed in terms of the grassroots he didn't have a large following um what happened when um he fell ill was that he was very ill um for a couple of months uh, he was really taken out of uh, politics for a while um and during that time um uh, many of the local community and caste associations in india mobilized themselves to come together and to help ordinary Indians who were suffering in large numbers from the Spanish flu. Um, The main motivation for that was that the colonial power, the British, um, really did not have sufficient uh, resources to deal with such a healthcare emergency and not on the scale that it was unfolding in India. So they asked for help. and These Indian organizations came to the rescue and they really were instrumental in bringing aid to some of the remotest and poorest populations in India and so what happened in a way was that after the pandemic these groups not only had been brought into new contact with uh, populations that they hadn't previously um met but they were also brought together in a kind of uh, you know common spirit themselves and this this provided to a very great extent the grassroots support that Gandhi needed when he came back into the national game He uh, now had a very important new following in terms of fighting for independence in India. It took another few decades to be realized, but um, the movement was really um, gaining momentum by that time.
1: Can you talk to us a bit about the legacy of Roscoe Vaughan?
2: Roscoe Vaughan was a young soldier who um, died... Of the uh, Spanish flu, while in an American base um, in 1918, um, while being recruited for the and trained for the war effort, um, a sample of his infected lung tissue was taken and preserved at the American Forces Institute of Pathology, and it was this sample um, which allowed uh, Jeffrey Taubenberger and other um, leading Spanish flu expert to uh, sequence the genome of the virus that caused the pandemic in 1918. Um, And so, he he performed a very important role in allowing them to understand what made that virus so virulent in being able to reconstruct the virus and in making major progress towards improving flu vaccines generally.
1: Well, I've taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, My final (laughs) question for you is, uh, what are you working on now?
2: Well, so I have become very interested in working on the Spanish flu in the whole topic of historical memory, why I remember some things and not others, um, the extent to which our understanding of the past is flawed. And that's really something that's taking up a lot of my interest at the moment.
1: That sounds great. Uh, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it, and it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Take care.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you for your questions.